I'm Joy. I've already been up here so far this morning. I'm your worship leader. But uh, today our message is about a worshiping community. So they suckered me into talking to you. We'll see how this goes. Um, it was funny because I was looking through my, my notes, and the last time I preached was March 14th of last year. So it's been almost, almost a year. They want me to do this more often, but... You know, I have a toddler, and, you know, we all have our excuses. But <laughs> anyway, I'm here today, and hopefully we'll share something. We've been discussing God's Beautiful Community. It's a book that a few people around here have read. And uh, there's, it's talking about what is the body of Christ supposed to look like? What is this community supposed to look like? If we were to jot down some characteristics of this Christian church community body of Christ, how could we describe it? Or how would God want to see it described. And some of, the, um, some of the ones we've touched on is a peculiar community, meaning it's not like other communities you might be part of. It's not like other groups you might be part of. There's things that make us different. And that's good. God should make us different. It is a hopeful community. There is lots of communities that gather for encouragement, but they don't have hope for what comes after this. And we do. And that hope for what comes after this life is also hope that meets us right here where we are. It affects our daily life. We are a serving community. There are other service-oriented communities out there, which is great. In fact, there's tons of them. There's tons of nonprofits that exist that serve. That's also a characteristic of the Christian community that we serve. We're Christ-centered. This one is different. And it's different even than other religions that are out there that believe in Christ as some form or part of their religion. Christ is everything. He is the center He's around which we, result, um, we revolve. I heard a sermon one time, and the pastor started it out by saying, I'm going to shake you up a little bit, and what I'm going to tell you is that God is not your first priority. Everybody kind of gets a little uncomfortable. In fact, God is not one of your priorities at all. God is the center. And around him, everything else comes into circle. So that's um, Christ-centered community. We are a reconciling community. This is pretty unique. I would say there's a lot of communities out there that when any sort of division comes up, any sort of tension comes up, that dissolves friendships, dissolves marriages, dissolves families. They can't get through that. And the Christian community should be marked by something different. We have the, the strength, the support, the scripture, the relationship, and the presence of the Holy Spirit to make us a reconciling community. We are an encouraging community. This is... Um, Benjamin and I, my husband, were just talking about this a couple days ago. We were talking about Facebook, and he goes, I just never go on there anymore because just all these people, you know, arguing and bickering and complaining and posting all the things they want to complain about. And I mean, there are other portions that hopefully occur on Facebook, but I'd have to agree with him, you know. It's not, um, it's not an encouraging community for the most part. Even the people who you think you might, you know, know in daily life that could encourage you on a normal basis, sometimes that. So, We want to be different. We want to be different from the world. We want this to be an encouraging community. And we're a generous community. Andrew talked about that last week. And uh, this is more than just to do with our finances. It has to do with our whole being, with our resources, our time, our emotions. And I would kind of venture to say that generosity pervades through all those other characteristics that we have listed there. Um, If we're going to be reconciled, we have to let the self die and be generous to those that we are trying to reconcile with. If we're going to encourage, we have to be generous with our praise and our affirmation. 
and giving words of encouragement. This week we're going to talk about the worshiping community. And that's more than just the music. That's what we normally think of is when we say worship. Oh, the part where we sing songs. But we're going to talk about how worship is more than that in our life and also in the service and in this community. Here's a few scriptures that talk about little pieces of the heart of worship that are beyond just the music. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So this is worship, loving him with our heart, with our soul, with our strength. It's encompassing our whole person. It's a holistic worship. Psalm 95, 6 says, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So this is, there's no mention of music here, but bowing down is something that we might see in the service here as part of the music. It might even be something that you see, especially in other um, denominations, they kneel frequently throughout the service. It's because this is referenced a lot in scripture. It's an act of submission, of humility, of saying, Lord, I come and I give myself to you. You are bigger than me and I'm smaller than you and I need you. Would you come? Psalm 95.1 says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our maker. So here's a couple uh, vocal expressions, singing and shouting. I'd like to see us do more shouting around here. We have a few songs we've introduced that have the word shout, and we like to shout when we come to those, because um, when we lift our voices, there's something emotional that's happening there. And you see it in other parts of our culture where people shout. They get excited about things in sports and many other situations, but we don't seem to think that's appropriate in church. And as your worship leader, I'm going to tell you it's appropriate in church. So feel free to shout. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Normally somewhere at the beginning they pray, and I forgot to put that in, so we'll stop and do that now. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence. Thank you that, um, that you are worthy of worship, that you are a being within yourself, there is worship, there is adoration, there is praise, there is lifting up and exalting. And I just pray that we will experience you today, that we will hear from you. Lord, make our hearts open and receptive. And give me your words. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, my next point is that worship is important in God's book, pun intended. If we quickly peruse the Bible, it is evident the importance that God places on worship. The longest book of the Bible is Psalms. It's an entire book dedicated to worship. David, the man who wrote many of those psalms, but not all of them, he was called a man after God's heart, and he was probably one of the most notable worship leaders in history, certainly in the Bible. The tribe of um, the Israelites, when the Lord kind of made them into a people group, there were 12 sons of a man named Israel, and they each, had, each 12 son had a name, and as their families multiplied, they became the 12 tribes of Israel, And one of those 12 was the tribe of Leviticus. The son's name was Levi. So they became the Levites. And then the book of Leviticus has to do with the code of the Levites, or all the the things that had to do with that family group of people. And their job was the service, the worship service, the organizing, and they took care of the temple, and they didn't have a separate income. All the other tribes had separate incomes and functions within um, the body, but the Levites were just the priests. They were the ones in charge of that. And, and the tithes were actually brought to support that tribe so they wouldn't have to grow their own food, get their own you know, grains and olive oil and herbs. 
Um, much of the tie that they brought at that time was food, meat, things that had been grown to actually feed and support them. So they wouldn't have to do that in addition to the ministries of the church. So that whole book in the Bible is talking about what that's going to look like. In the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, some of the first five books of the Bible, it lays out chapter upon chapter of highly specific instructions about worship, about the sacrifices, about the garments the priests should wear when they were offering incense, about tiny little details in the activities of worship and sacrifice in the temples. The fact that God placed so much attention on that, although we don't duplicate many of those activities in our current services, it just shows you it matters. It matters to him, and he cared about the details that were part of that. Revelation, very last book of the Bible, uh, John, one of Jesus' disciples, is in exile for being a Christian. And while he's in exile, he has a vision that's a glimpse of heaven. And Revelation is his documentation of that vision he had. And the very first thing he sees in his glimpse of heaven is Jesus on the throne, and he's surrounded by creatures and people who are worshiping him night and day. There's no end. There's no end to this continuous worship. And that's the very first thing that greets his eyes as he views heaven. So we can see, if we look through scripture, that worship is not a little deal to God. It's a big deal to him. Graham Kendrick is a worship leader, um, was real popular a few years back. And he said, worship is first and foremost for his benefit, not ours. But it is marvelous to discover that in giving him pleasure, we ourselves enter into what can become our richest and most wholesome experience in life. The next thing I want to talk about, and if you were here several years ago when I did a whole series on worship, this was one of my points, that worship is a verb. It is participatory, it requires action, it is action, and it engages our senses. Because worship is participatory and our senses are involved, one of the things that we tend to get stuck on is our emotions. And how do our emotions come into play with worship? Are they important? Are they not important? Do we worship when we feel like it? If we worship when we aren't feeling like it, is that a lie? Uh, Do we have to feel emotion in order to be worshiping? Are the people who are expressing more apparent emotion, are they worshiping better than us? And um, I would say that if we're worshiping when we don't feel like worshiping, that that would be a lie if worship was an emotion. But worship is not an emotion. I don't see scripture defining worship as emotion. Worship is an action verb of our spirit. So that can happen no matter what our emotional state is, no matter what our physical state is, because it's an action that's occurring in our spirit, the part of our body that is not connected. I mean, it is connected, but it's different. It's a separate part. It's the part that relates to God and is transcendent. It's the part that's going to live when the rest of our body is gone. If so, if your spirit is not in a place of worship, there is action required from the rest of your body to come into alignment with your spirit. It's choosing to worship with your spirit, not your feelings, not your emotions. And if we begin to tell our body to come into alignment with our spirit and tell our body to come into alignment with our spirit and our emotions to come into alignment with our spirit, that's not fake. That's not hype. It's getting our body to come into alignment with the spirit and what our spirit is called to do in relating to the Lord. So if you lift your hands when you don't feel like it, that's not a lie. It's telling your body, come into alignment with the Spirit. So our emotions can be involved. They are part of us. They are part of our body. They are part of our soul. 
But real worship is happening when our spirit is responding to God. And that might be visible on the outside of you. It might not be visible on the outside of you. But we're taking an action. We're taking an action with our spirit. It's not just an experience that's happening to us. And one day we experience that, and one day we might not experience that. Our English word worship comes from two words. I've talked about all the Greek and Hebrew words before, and I'm not going to go into that today. But our English word comes from a worth and ship, and it means to ascribe or declare worth. Again, this is an action. It's a verb. We are ascribing, we are declaring. And we can ascribe and declare worth with our minds, with our mouths, with our spirit. We can, indescri- we can ascribe and declare worth when we are sad, when we are depressed, when we are overwhelmed, when we are discouraged, when we are suicidal, when we are distracted, when we've had a miscarriage, when we've lost our job, when we haven't had a job for years. We can ascribe and declare worth to, this, with, to the Lord with our spirit. Worship is more than a song or a moment. It is a way of living. Psalm 34, 1. This is something, a part of a psalm that David wrote. And there was this story, it's really a, a pretty funny story that happens, where um, King David was being chased down and hunted at that time. It was before, actually I, I didn't look this up to see if it was before or after he was king. But anyway, he's being hunted and trying to kill. This happened many times in his life, both before and after he was the king. <laughs> And he got taken into this one king. They caught him, and they took him into this guy who really wanted to, to take him out. And he pretended to be insane. He started, like, drooling and slurring his words and making all sorts of crazy sounds. So they would think he was a crazy person, and they had caught the wrong guy. And it worked, and the guy sent him away. In fact, he drove him out, and he told all his people, well, who have you done bringing this lunatic into me? So he writes this psalm at the end of that. You know, because that didn't have to work, right? They could have seen through it. But the Lord was, was using both David's creativity and the situation to protect him. So David writes, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Then in Hebrews 13.5, we read, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. So we can offer this continual sacrifice, this continual praise, again, because we are not prevented, our spirit is not prevented from worshiping by the conditions that we are experiencing or the conditions that are around us. So my next slide says, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. This is something my mom taught me a long time ago. And I think she does it in almost every sermon she presents, whether or not she means to. It usually happens, at least it happens to me. And we see it in the ministry of Jesus as he talks to people, when he talks to the lost versus when he talks to his disciples or when he talks to his Pharisees. And we see him comforting the afflicted, reaching out to the lost and saying, let me comfort you. Would you come, come and take rest in my arms? And you see him speaking gentle words and encouraging words. Let all you who are heavy laden come and have rest. In the Beatitudes, he talks about, you know, all who are weak and poor in spirit and the beautiful things. And he's not saying you have to be poor in spirit to get this beautiful thing. He's saying, no matter where you are when you're in that hard place, come and I will give you rest and I will bring you these beautiful things. So when we're talking about worship, this should happen too. And it should also happen, hopefully, as I'm, as I'm talking today, to comfort the afflicted. If you're in a place of affliction, 
then worship is something that can comfort you. It's something God has created to bring you comfort. So um, if you're in an afflicted place, maybe it would be a good time to just stop and try to worship. And if all you can do is just put on a song that you enjoy and listen to it, then do that. Because it's, it's one of the ways the Lord can bring comfort to you in that place. Then the second piece is to afflict the comfortable. And we see this a lot with Jesus when he's speaking to the Pharisees and religious leaders, and sometimes with his own disciples when they weren't getting it. And um, I think sometimes we come to church and we always want it to be comforting the afflicted. And the problem is we might be on the other side of it. We don't realize it. When something that somebody comes up here pegs us, and we don't go, ooh, conviction. We go, I don't like that. I don't like what she said or he said. And I don't think I agree with that. I'm not sure that's good theology. And we need to stop when that resistance happens because the Lord is trying to afflict us in that comfortable place to get under our skin and say, there's something here. There might be something here. And so it's important to just stop when we, because I do this all the time. I'm a very stubborn person. And my mom is just precious because my whole life she's been um, patient with me. And to this day, as a grown woman, if she comes to me to try to bring me some sort of observation or correction about my life, it's just so hard for me to not resist and to not defend myself and to just be stubborn and say, no, I'm not doing that, or no, I'm not like that, and you're wrong. And, and, and later, as I process, I'm able to say, she, you know, there is something there to what she had to say. And so um, as you listen today and as you listen to messages in general, um, when you feel that, you know, poking, just allow your spirit to soften for a moment and see if the Lord might be wanting to share something with you um, to get you out of that comfortable place and into a place of growing. Um, kind of going back to the comforting and the afflicted part, I've shared this story before, but I'm going to share it real briefly. There was a time in my life during college when I was extremely depressed. Um, I, wasn't, I wouldn't say that I was suicidal to the extent that I um, would have taken action to kill myself because I was really afraid that people who committed suicide didn't go to heaven. And I didn't really have a good theology about that despite being a pastor's kid, and I was just really nervous about not going to heaven if I took my own life. But I was, I was sad and depressed and lonely enough to want to be dead. And some of that was um, not the greatest choices that I had made. Some of it was just life circumstances. And the only way that I could sleep during that season is I had this one really beautiful song, worship song, that I would put on on my CD player at the time in my bedroom. And as a matter of fact, that CD won't play anymore because it, that song has probably been played thousands of times during that season of my life. And it would just repeat that song all night long, literally all night long as I slept. And every time that I woke up or I couldn't fall back asleep, it was playing. And I didn't feel close to the Lord at that season of my life. I didn't feel like worshiping. I I, I knew that God loved me in my head, but there was no connection of that to my emotions or the state of being that I was at that time. But I knew that that, that that part of me would somehow engage and allow the comforting of the Lord to come down in that time of worship. So I would encourage you to use that as a tool in your life during hard times. And the beautiful thing about that is as we begin to experience that, the Lord is loving on us. And his love begins to change us. And his faithfulness and his goodness begin to be revealed to us during that. Um, the other piece of this, okay, kind of going back to afflict the comfortable. I'm going to try to do a little bit of afflicting right now for those of you that need it. Um, 
corporate worship is an outflow of personal worship. So even if you're in a broken place and you're experiencing that personal worship, you're going to experience greater comfort when you show up to the service on Sunday because it's an extension of what you're already experiencing in your own life. Um, If you are just busy, like many of us are, or not focused and don't take the time to spend time with the Lord during the week, and I'm not trying to make any rules about that, but however that could look for you, when you come in on a Sunday and you say, I'm expecting to have an awesome worship experience handed out to me today, the band should have good songs and my emotions should get involved and, and I'm expecting to hear great things from the sermon and to just change me and inspire me and make my week better. And those are beautiful things. And we, we, all of us that are up here really are trying to kind of help do that for you. But you're only really going to get out of it what you put into it. And so if you're not putting in sometime between the hour and a half that you're here on Sundays, you're going to get out less. So if you want to get out more, you need to put in more. Um, so if you don't feel like you're connecting with God at church on Sundays on a regular basis the worship just isn't working for you and the sermons just aren't doing much for you my first concern is are you connecting with God when you're not at church because I think if you are even if it's just a little taste here and there you will experience him greater in in this corporate setting because each of you are coming in here bringing something or taking something And if we're all bringing something in from our experience this week, then our corporate experience is literally feeding off of each other. It's what happens in big crowds when they get all riled up and have a riot or they get all riled up and have a big concert. That corporate experience is feeding off of each other, and it's expectancy that they brought in with them. And so the more we can do that, we're, we're, we're having a stronger and richer experience ourselves, and we're also passing some of that off to the people that are around us. So instead of what are we getting out of church, we should be asking, what are you bringing to church? And you don't have to be running children's ministry or doing announcements to be bringing something to church each week. All right, we're going to talk a few narratives about worship. This um, book that we've been reading has several other books that we've been going over the past couple years. And the guy talks a lot about narratives, which just means a story in our head, a certain belief or way of thinking that we believe about something. And he talks about some false narratives that we have regarding worship. And the first one is that worship is a personal matter meant to inspire the individual. Um, In this book, this guy, when he was a real young pastor, one of the tasks, I just think this is horrible because I don't know how it's supposed to be profitable. One of the tasks that he was assigned by a senior pastor is to take a list of this big church, a list of all these people who had visited or been a member at at some time, and I want to say it was like a three or four year window, just huge, hundreds and hundreds of people, and to contact every single one of them and see if they'd be interested in coming back to church again. And at least offering to go meet with them in person. And I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think he called something like 400 people, and he got two of them to agree to let him come over to their homes. And one of those two people was a single mom. She had several children. She worked full-time, and you know, trying to keep a house running like that is a big challenge. And he said that he would, after this encounter I'll describe to you, he said he would never forget um, kind of her perspective and her story. And basically what she told him when he got to her house is, yes, I'm so connected to God. I love him so much, and we have such a beautiful relationship. He said, tell me more about it. She goes, let me show you. So she walks him into this corner of her house. It's a small room off of her bedroom, and it it looks like an appropriate shrine. Like there's a chair and a lamp and a table and books, and there's candles. And it's obvious that there is 
attention put into this little place, being a safe and quiet place. And she says, this is where I come to meet God. And I'm in here at least an hour every day. And I really do experience and meet God here. And he just thinks, you know, this is amazing. You know, so how, how many people have this type of um, setup and are really coming to meet with the Lord like that and are as um, encouraged about it as she seems? It's, it's, I mean, she's doing it. She's not just making it up. You can see in her demeanor. And so then he starts asking her about church, and she says, no, I have all I need right here. And I really don't go to church because I get discouraged by all the other people. And at the time, he, in the book, he says, I was a really young pastor, and I just thought, well, maybe she's right, you know? Maybe she doesn't need anything else. You know, what is the point of church, and what is the point of gathering together, and do we really need that? And, you know, as he process through that over the course of his life it was kind of something he kept coming back to and he he finally just had to say you know I don't see that in scripture I see community and I see worship being communal and it's private and it's communal and so if 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 me you know if if it's only communal if I'm only getting it in this community I'm missing a beautiful piece of worship the Lord has created and if it's only in private and we're isolating ourselves from the community of the body of Christ, it's only a piece. And those pieces might be nice, but it's not the depth that the Lord has intended for worship. It's not the depth that is intended for his people. And then I would also venture to say it's not the impact that he would have us have. And so we're missing out not only at a personal level, but at an impact level, on the cause of Christ level, um, because we need that fullness to be able to do what he's calling us to do. So in the book he says... He redefines this narrative. He gives us a kingdom narrative. He says, worship is a communal activity meant to instruct a people. And I had to disagree with him and say that worship is a personal and communal activity meant to instruct a people. Because you can't just say it's not personal at all, because it is. Um, But it's not one or the other. They go hand in hand. And he said something else really um, insightful. And he said, we go to church not to be entertained, but to be trained. And he had a conversation with his teenage son asking him, you know, what do you like about church? What don't you like about church? What would make you want to stick with church when you're not in my house anymore? And what would make you not want to come back? And the parts of the service his son identified as the most meaningful were the ones most unlike his normal life, communion. Um, And he said the music, but he said, I really like it when we sing hymns, and it's real simple. Some of this, you know, electric guitar and rock and, you know, crazy stuff is just... It's just too much like everything else I hear all the time. And sometimes I just like the beauty of the simplicity of it. Um, and his son also identified that even the sermon could be meaningful to him. He said, I'm, I am being instructed. I am being trained. And I don't get that type of training in other parts of my life about those parts of my character and my spirit. So hopefully that's happening here for you too. The next false narrative is worship is an obligation we owe to God. And I think that we get this false narrative because we're just twisting something. We hear that, you know, God is worthy of worship and he's beautiful and he deserves our worship and um, we worship him because he's worthy and holy. And all of that's true, but that doesn't mean that worship is an obligation. And so we just twist that in our heads like, I have to do this. You know, I, God is worthy and so I must worship him. And um, in truth, God does not need our worship. I mean, yes, he created us hoping that we would worship him, but he doesn't need it like he's going to, you know, pass over dead if he doesn't get it from us. We need to worship. When we worship, 
Our spirits are aligned with truth. And our souls function well when we are immersed in truth. I'm going to say that again. We need to worship. When we worship, our souls are aligned with truth. And our souls function well when they are immersed in truth. And honestly, our souls get immersed in a whole lot of stuff all the time. And so immersing them in truth, at least at church, hopefully a few other times a week, is important for us to function well. It would kind of like being expecting that we could just continue living our lives if we only drank water every few days. I mean, that would just be ludicrous. And you might be okay for a little while and not notice it, but it would eventually cap catch up to you because your body functions well when it has water and our souls function well when they're experiencing truth and worship is one of the ways we can experience that so our kingdom narrative is that worship is an invitation given by God not an obligation an invitation he says come come and let me shape your soul because it's good for you you will function better when your soul is being shaped by the Holy Spirit A man named Alfred North Whitehead said, Religion is what an individual does with his solitariness. Christianity is not a religion. It is a formation of a people through the gospel. And the gospel being the good news that God in Christ has reconciled the world. Religion is the human search for God. Christianity is God's search for humans. So we do not worship so much as we respond. Through Christ, we respond to the Father's love. And this is the ground pattern of Christian worship. So just to review here, the right narratives about worship are that it is an invitation, not an obligation. It is not just a personal matter. It is a communal and personal, communal and personal activity. It is not about meeting our needs as much as shaping our soul. And the beautiful thing about God is as he shapes our soul, our needs are given peace. There's a story about C.S. Lewis. Um, I would think that most people have heard of him, but he is uh, a guy that lived quite some time ago, 1800s, I'm pretty sure. And he started out his life as an eight, longer, 16, 15, 1940. Why did I think he was 1800s? Because he's old and you're young. Anyway, he was a cool guy. He started out his life, um, well, skip past his childhood, but as far as the part of his life where he tried to figure out if there was some kind of religion out there, as an atheist. And he, he had some really terrible experiences as a kid that certainly didn't help him come to that conclusion or come to some better conclusion than that. And <clears throat> I think it was probably some of the damage he experienced in his childhood that led him to conclude, yeah, there must not be a God, otherwise some of this stuff shouldn't have happened to me. And... Um, at some point, he started wrestling through this. He was a very logical, critical thinking type of guy. And he started just thinking about it and thinking about different things in the world. And as he, the more he thought about it, the more he realized it was illogical that there could not be a God. That, um, and his book, Mere Christianity, is a great description of his journey. And there are several others that I've read. But he literally walks you through this. And if you read it, it would be hard to describe it because he was such an intellectual guy. But you follow his train of thought and you realize based on very simple evidence we see in the world around us, it literally doesn't make sense that there isn't a God. 
So then he has to take, okay, so there has to be a God. So what is this God like? And what does that mean for me? And what does he expect of me? And what could he look like? And of all the different options out there, you know, who, who or what really is God? And he eventually followed this journey through and became a believer, almost completely on his own. I mean, there were several people interacting with him, but um, it was really this intellectual journey that he made. And then he ended up spending a great portion of his life as a believer and writing many, many books that are lots of fun and very interesting um, that express some of his faith and talk about different parts of that. And when he was a new believer, he began attending church because um, he had read in the Bible that that was part of what you did. And he initially experienced a lot of criticism toward the people that were around him. He would see people that he knew, and he would know something about their life, or he would see people that just looked kind of um, disheveled or slovenly. And he remembers this. He tells a story about this one time he saw um, this. Uh, he describes him. Let's see how he describes him. An old saint is how he describes him. And he is in rubber boots, and he's sitting on the opposite end of the pew. And he can tell from this guy's you know, physical appearance that he's just not very well put together. And he's just thinking, you know, what's going on? And then he didn't like the hymns. They just seemed old, and they, they weren't really the type of music that was popular with people at that time. And he's watching this gentleman just singing these hymns with great passion and devotion. And all of a sudden it hit him. I mean, how long has this man been a believer? And what does his faith look like? And what has his faith carried him through? And if he's here at this stage of his life still believing and still singing these, this old music with great devotion, there's something in his spirit that's alive and that has sustained him. And he says in his, when he was writing about this story, I realized I was not fit to clean those rubber boots. And he said, when you're in church and we experience these types of things, it gets us out of our solitary conceit. It was solitary because he thought he could do it alone. He thought he didn't need that gentleman in his life to help him work on his walk with God. And it was conceit because he thought Christian worship was not worthy of his appreciation. God taught him the invaluable worth of corporate worship. And we would do well to remember this. We need each other, despite our differences, perhaps because of them. Worship is not about the quality of the performance, but the heart of those who worship. So maybe you don't relate to C.S. Lewis and the old saint in boots, but maybe you can relate to some other criticisms that might occur within the body or other expressions of worship. Maybe you show up and, um, you know, you don't think someone in church is wearing something appropriate. I would be having trouble with that sometimes. Um, But that criticism is not what the Lord is wanting me to experience in the body of Christ. Maybe you're out there, you see something gone wrong with the service, some technical difficulty. Or maybe you have some theoretical, theological disagreements with something that's being spoken up here. I don't think any of us up here profess to be 100% correct, so we may periodically say something that's not totally correct or that you might not agree with. You might not like a particular song that we choose and it comes on and you just think, I don't really want to sing that song again today. Or it could be simple distraction. We have kids, we have stuff to do after church, we have stuff happening on the way to church, and we're just distracted. Because worship is communal, when we're distracted, when we're critical, when we show up late, we not only hurt our own experience of worship, but the experience of others around us. The good news about this is that in the body of Christ, sin does not get the last word. Forgiveness is the last word. This is part of being the reconciling body of Christ. 
And forgiveness is something that each of us desperately need to experience, something we're desperately going to need to receive from others and something we're certainly going to need to give to others. So we can begin by forgiving ourselves for running late or the person sitting next to us for making us later or the PowerPoint tech for not having the words up on time or the worship leader for choosing that song you don't like. Um, Alice has this pot over here that's lit. She spoke about it briefly when she presented to us, and I wanted to just talk about it a little bit more. This was uh, in Scripture in the Old Testament. There's a bunch of prophets, and one of the things that many of those prophets did was some sort of physical enactment that was um, visual aid. Is the word I'm looking for. It was a visual aid for what God was saying to the people in prophecy. And sometimes their own bodies were it. Like one of them, I think, like buried himself in the sand for a year and somebody had to feed him. I mean, it was like up to the neck. I mean, it was like insane stuff sometimes they did. And you're going, what? Like, God, what, why did you ask him to do that? But the point is God was using visual aids to instruct his people. And apparently this happened in other cultures as well, but God did it in his own specific way. So um, I think Alice had heard about somebody else, some other church who had done this, and she got all inspired and wanted us to do it too. So... We took this pot that used to be all in one piece, and it was um, broken into pieces by some people of the prayer group that uh, I'm part of here with our church. And then we all took little pieces home, and we wrote different scriptures or prayers on them that we felt like the Lord wanted us to share. And then we came back, and we were going to glue it back together, but it fit together too nicely. So we had to kind of purposely make little jagged cracks in it and, and tape it on the inside so that the light would shine through. And the illustration or the visual aid of this is that the pieces represent us. And we're all broken and we're all messed up and we all have problems and jagged, sharp edges. And when we come up against each other, sometimes we bump and scrape against each other and it's not very comfortable. But if we can be held together by the glue or the tape of the Holy Spirit, then we can make something beautiful and his light can shine through those very cracks and defects and problems and jagged edges that each of us have. And in order for that to happen, we have to be willing to be one of those pieces. And we have to be willing to be bumped around a little bit and to learn to be a reconciling body, to come together and let his line shine through us corporately. One of the ways that we can prepare ourselves, prepare our hearts for worship is something called holy expectancy. For many of us, attending church is fraught with frustration or distraction. We're running late, or maybe once we're here, the sermon was too long, or coffee wasn't ready, or the type of tea we wanted wasn't out, or whatnot. And I I remember the very first Sunday after we had Jax, our son, trying, it wasn't the very first Sunday after he was born, but several weeks after he had been born, when I finally felt strong and well enough to want to um, try to make it to church. And Benjamin was already here. I think he was running sound. And so I was at home by myself trying to get out the door with a newborn the very first time. Everybody else had already gone to church. And I thought, you know, can't be that hard to do, right? It's just me and this little baby. <clears throat> and I think, I think I finally showed up halfway through the sermon because, right, like I got him dressed and I got me dressed. And then as we're trying to get out the door, he's crying. I'm like, God, I want to nurse again. Like, seriously, this kid is in the bottomless pit of wanting to eat. So I sit down and nurse him, and of course he like spits up, so I get stuff on my shirt. So then I'm changing my clothes, and he's happy for a little bit while I change my clothes. And then we're about ready to go again, and then all of a sudden he's crying, I'm like, what's going on? So I check his diaper, sure enough there's a mess in his diaper, and of course the mess wasn't contained in his diaper. 
It was, you know, all over more things. So then I'm cleaning him up and cleaning the clothes and then cleaning everything else went on. And finally, he's clean again and I'm clean. And <clears throat> I think even back then I had started getting our clothes to match. And so then I had to find an outfit where we still kind of coordinated our outfits. <laughs> it was just something fun I did for myself. But anyway, um, <clears throat> and I remember just being like, I'm not going to make it. And I almost gave up. And I thought, well, you know what? If I don't get there today, then the same thing is going to happen next week or the week after. It's like, I have to just do it. I have to just get there whatever time I can get there. And I'm just so glad that, you know, like they grow up and they don't always be spitting up all over and pooping all over the place. But the more kids you have, the more that can happen. And even if you don't have kids, that can happen in your home. And so just getting here... can be this huge effort, monumental effort sometimes. So if we want to make corporate worship more meaningful in spite of all that trouble, we have to prepare our hearts and ourselves as much as we can. We, we don't want to be trying to cultivate an outer attitude for worship in the 10 seconds that we're walking through the lobby and trying to find our coffee. We need to be doing that before we ever get here. We want to prepare our hearts before that. So this guy talks, he, he talks about the word margin, which I think this is a great lesson for totally beyond church, but he says prepare through margin. And he talks about time margin and heart margin. I don't know what you can do about poopy children margin, but anyway. He says go to bed early on Saturday. So then maybe if your kids wake you up early that day, or if you don't have kids, you just decide you want to wake up early that day and get your heart ready. Create some margin and some space in your day so by the time you get here you're not totally frazzled. And you have something to bring. He says, time margin is necessary to create heart margin. And I think this is so true in other parts of our lives. When our lives are too busy and they're too full, um, we don't have time margin anymore. And so we don't have heart margin anymore. We don't have patience for those in our family that we love because our time margin is all spent. And it might be worth our while to look at our family's lives and schedules to see where we can create some margin. If you're coming to church and you want to be ready, maybe you could try arriving 10 minutes early, 15 minutes early. Um, you'd be surprised that there's actually people here to talk to. So it's something you can start doing before your kids are already melting down. You have time to get your coffee and make sure that it's not gone with all the other people who come late. <clears throat> and you can take some of that time, just maybe sit peacefully if you're able to, and lift your heart and get your heart ready in preparation for the king. It helps to appreciate our worship when we can reduce the distractions that occur when we're late. And then, even if you can't do margin and you can't get here on time, try to at least come with holy expectancy. On the way here, you know, pray out loud in the car, Lord, let my heart be ready. I know you want to do something for me today. I know you want to speak to me today. So, Spirit, when I show up at church today, would you speak to me? Jesus, would you teach my heart? Father, would you let me experience your power and your change today? And that's something anybody can do, no matter of anything else that you have going on. This takes a moment of thoughtfulness. And then another idea that the book presents is, um, while you're at the service, you can focus on one aspect of the service each week. Like one week you could pick communion. We do that the first Sunday of each month. Or you could pick the sermon, or you could pick the music. Um, you could possibly even pick the taking of the tithes and offerings. And just kind of use your imagination and your mind to focus on that piece of the service. If you choose the music, maybe you really are trying to read the words as you're singing them and letting 
letting what you're speaking and singing kind of come in a little bit more than just going through the motions. If you choose, um, you know, communion, just think about the history of that. Think about, you know, imagine yourself maybe with some other um, people in history or other people in other parts of the world who are experiencing that same sacrament and that same piece of our faith. And just um, that's one way that you can maybe get something different out of the service. And then something we can definitely do to make our corporate worship more meaningful is to apply one thing. And it doesn't have to be something in the sermon. Maybe it's some phrase that was in one of the songs. Worship can transform us. It can lead us into new ways of living. So just as worship begins with holy expectancy, it ends with holy obedience. So try to keep it simple. And over the course of the Sunday worship service, try to discern one thing that God might be asking of you and try to put it into practice over the coming week. We can't do it all. We can't remember everything that was set up here. Um, you know, but maybe if you have your iPhone with you, you can pull it out not to check your text messages or your Facebook, but to just type in real quick that thing that stuck out to you that you say, I want to try to apply this this week. And then put it on your little calendar to pop up and remind you a couple days that week. This was the thing I wanted to try to apply. Um, the last thing I want to talk about a little bit as far as the music goes, just because this is something that I work on every week, is some forms of worship. <clears throat> um, God designed us in such a way that sound and rhythm do inspire us and motivate us. This happens in no matter what kind of music you're listening to for the most part. It can even motivate us when we don't like that particular music. <laughs> music touches us at an emotional and bodily level. And when it is used to offer praise to God, it connects us with God connects our spirit and them together in ways that teaching and preaching and listening cannot. And um, worship in the part of the music does involve our whole bodies, our stomach, breath, diaphragm, breathing, our tongues, our lungs, our hands, if we're clapping and raising our hands in the air. So in this sense, worship is holistic. And holistic is kind of a catch word right now. And um, just talking because we're recognizing that our body isn't all these little pieces and we can't just do this one thing here and this one thing there, that it is our whole self. And worship is a practice that is holistic. Silence is another form of worship, one that we're probably a little more uncomfortable with because the world is so noisy, all the time so noisy. Um, I often, of course it doesn't work so much now that I have a toddler in the car who wants to talk to me all the time, but I normally don't listen to music in the car. I used to. I would listen to music when I was driving during rush hour because worship music at rush hour was the only way I could stay sane. (laughs) But if it wasn't rush hour, I would try to just have silence in my car because there was very little time in our day that is silent. And it's something that scripture talks about. If our soul is going to experience rest or make a connection with God, we do need spaces of silence. And silence in worship is actually another sign of peculiarity that we have as Christians. And then giving. Giving is itself an act of worship. And we can think about that as we're giving our gifts to the Lord. And we can think about the fact that we're supporting our Levites. We're supporting our priests. And offering our gifts helps us to let go of the needs that we have to store up treasures for ourselves. So it's another way that the Lord shapes our soul. Kind of kills that selfish stuff we have going on. And then here's some other ones. When I um, A few years ago I did a three-part series on worship and these were some of the forms of worship that we have scriptures talking about each one of them. 
In the noise category, we found in the scripture, we found singing, making music, silence, and shouting. In our posture, we found standing, kneeling, and face down, all referenced as actions of worship. And in other types of movement, we had clapping of hands, lifting of hands, dancing, and jumping. So if you see any of these things happening in our services, it's not because somebody here wants to show up or because they're experiencing a higher emotional state than you. It's because they're choosing to tell their body to come into alignment with their spirit and, and follow what we see in Scripture being encouraged for us to do. So if there's something on this list that you haven't tried before, and it could be silence, um, could be jumping, those might be an interesting experiment for you in the coming weeks as part of worship. And just see what happens when you tell your body to come into alignment with your spirit. Does it change something? All right, so I'm going to summarize here kind of the points that I made. Worship is a verb. It is an action verb of our spirit. Our emotional state is not the determinant of how we worship. It doesn't matter what our emotional state is. It doesn't prevent us from worshiping. Worship is a way of living. It's something that doesn't just happen here. It happens outside of here. And the more that we experience it, the more we will experience it. Worship is a personal and communal activity meant to instruct a people. Worship is an invitation given by God. When we worship, we align our hearts with truth. Our souls function well when immersed in truth. We can make corporate worship more meaningful by preparing our heart, maybe through some margin. Christianity is not a religion, but a formation of a people through the gospel. One way we can be formed is by the action of worship. All right, my lovely worship team, would you come up? We have one more song prepared for you today. And um, we started doing this recently. I don't know that we ever really gave any instruction about it. We started adding a song at the end of service. We changed a few other things around about the order. And we do that because we want, we can see the impact of worship in our experience in our lives. And so we want to give an opportunity for us to be engaged and to listen and then to respond. And so this is our responsorial uh, from, word from the more traditional at churches. It's our opportunity to say, what have we felt? What have we experienced today? And how can we respond to what the Holy Spirit is asking or saying to us um, as, a, as a final statement? So, as we respond in this song today, um, we'll have some people over here by the cross that will be available to pray with you or talk with you over any need that you might have. But um, specifically, I just want to encourage you to make some margin and to choose to tell your body to come into alignment with your spirit um, because your spirit will grow and your whole person will grow as a result of that. So um, if you want to just respond today by saying, Lord, I need more of you and I'm, I'm ready to make more space for you and I want worship to be more present throughout my life, not just on a Sunday, and I want to bring more to the service instead of just showing up and expecting to take from it, um, then just stand and open your hands and receive as we sing this song and um, let, your, let your body and your spirit respond to what he's saying today. So, thank you. <laughs>